Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. We've been working our way through a sermon series on the Gospel of John, and by just a happy coincidence and a a little bit of minor manipulation, just a little, um, we were able to land in such a way that we are going over John chapter 19, the crucifixion of Jesus today, uh, on the, the beginning of Holy Week, and next Sunday... I'm going to get to preach about the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. I'm so overjoyed that God did work out the timing without too much intervention from human beings. And so I'm really grateful for that. This morning, we're going to look at Jesus Christ crucified. And I want to ask you before I start the message formally that I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And I want you to think about someone in your life that you know beyond the shadow of a doubt has loved you truly. Just anyone in your life that you can count on and know they really, really loved you. You got that person in your mind? Go ahead and open your eyes. You have that person, you, you can picture their face, right? How do you know that they loved you? How did you arrive at such a conviction that that person loved you. And I'm not, I'm not trying to cast doubt on your answer. I mean, I, I really believe the person you pictured did love you well. But how did you know that that love was real? How did you know? There's a lot of ways we express love. But I love the way the Apostle John in his first epistle says it. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. I think what he's saying is, there's a lot of ways to express love to people. You know, kind words, gifts, generosity, loyalty, support. There's so many ways to express love, but one of the most reliable evidences of true love is sacrifice. And if you think about that person who loved you well, there's a very high likelihood that at some place along your relationship with them, they made some significant sacrifices because they loved you. They denied themselves something. They bore some burden. They took some loss upon themselves because they wanted to put you above themselves. You know, I once heard a speaker he was preaching, and he was one of these guys who travels the world speaking. And he, he was telling the story of on, on, on his way to preach in the UK, he lost his cross pendant. And if you know anything about the, the UK or really all of Western Europe, it is a picture of where America is headed in terms of post-Christian culture. We are running headlong to catch up with Europe in that regard. And we as a church can do something to fight that tide. But that's where we're headed. And so he was heading toward London to preach, and he was kind of feeling weird without his cross pendant. And so he stopped at a department store in London, and he asked the girl at the jewelry counter to show him their collection of crosses. And she was showing him, 
And then he pointed at one that he kind of liked. He said, can I see that one, please? And the girl said, oh, do you want the plain one or the one with the cute little man on it? Now, we chuckle. Everybody laughs when they hear that because how could you not know who that is if you're in the West? And yet, I think it's not so hard to imagine how we get to a place like that. And I'm not surprised at all if a non-Christian doesn't recognize that that cute little man on the cross represents the, the single greatest act of sacrifice and love the universe has ever seen. But it's possible to see that and have no recognition of what that means to us. Now, I'm not surprised when a non-Christian in a post-Christian world fails to recognize it, but it's not that hard for we who follow Jesus to also lose sight of the power of what the cross of Jesus Christ represents. In fact, it is so common a message that sometimes around Holy Week, what happens in churches across the world is that Christians kind of dig in and go, here we go again. I'm going to hear the same old story. Wake me up when it's over because I know how this one ends. I could preach this message myself. But I think it's so important to dwell on the cross of Jesus and Christ crucified because that's where everything begins for us in our relationship with God. And I want to dwell there today so that we never grow numb to what the cross of Jesus and him crucified should mean to us. And I want to do that by exploring the nature of this word sacrifice. Because one of the things we can say is the people who have made sacrifices for us are people we have known truly loved us. We experienced and received that love through their sacrifice. So it matters that we understand what makes a sacrifice a sacrifice. And one of the first things we can observe is that a sacrifice is a sacrifice precisely because it is costly. Have you ever gotten a gift from someone and you know you would bet 20 years of your life that that was a gift that they're regifting that they really didn't appreciate and care about, and so they're unloading it on you? Here, you throw it away. Now, I don't want to be, you know, cynical, but do you ever get the feeling that the thing a person gave you really cost them next to nothing? That you were an afterthought and the gift was a gesture, but you wouldn't really call it a sacrifice. In just reading the first three verses of John chapter 19, it's a little hard to read. I'm so grateful for the film The Passion of the Christ because, and you know, there are some things that maybe are problematic with that film, but one of the things I was grateful for is that it got an R rating because it was unflinching in its portrayal of the violence of the crucifixion. I choose images on purpose for my slides this year, and I was looking, you know, I did a Google search. I'm sorry. Sorry, Microsoft. I did a Bing search for images with the, the keyword crucifixion, and what I saw screen after screen were these antiseptic pictures of a bloodless Jesus just kind of like this chilling on a cross. And I thought how grotesquely inaccurate a depiction it is of what the cross really was. Mel Gibson and his crew went really to the other end. They showed us the horror of the cross. But it's important to know 
that Jesus didn't just go through some motions and phone it in. It was a very, very costly sacrifice. Long before the first nail was ever driven into his body, Jesus suffered on the way to the cross. We learned last week that his closest friends abandoned, betrayed, and denied even knowing him. Do you know how hard that is? If you've ever been betrayed or abandoned by someone you love, you know exactly what that feels like. He was assaulted physically. Not all of us can identify with that, but some of us really can. You know what it feels like to have violence, physical violence, directed at your person, and the fear and the hurt and the vulnerability that that produces in us. To have abuse heaped upon you, mockery thrown at you. How would you like to be one of the people who has to stand before God after you finish your earthly years and said, hey, I was one of the people who slapped the Son of God in the face. I I thought about that all week. Like, there are these people who actually slapped Jesus in the face. How do you explain that one? I mean, that is the ultimate my bad of all history, right? And he endures this, all of it, on the way to the cross. If you compare the four Gospels, it seems like there's a strong likelihood he was flogged not once, but twice. John records the first flogging because Pilate was troubled. He was in this position where he had uh, governing power and authority, and the Jewish leaders who had really only symbolic authority in their tribe were coming after him saying, you've got to put this man to death. And Pilate, being from the Roman judicial system, said, I'm looking for charges and I find none. I cannot find a reason to arrest and punish this man for anything. So he's in a bind, and they've got him cornered. So finally, to get him off his back, he says, let me just flog him. And in the Roman penal system, there were three levels of intensity when it came to flogging. It's very likely that what Jesus received in his first flogging was the slap on the hand. And when I say slap on the hand, it's still a flogging. You would not want that on the, on the best day of your life. You wouldn't be ready for something like that. But it was a flogging that was meant to send a message and to appease the Jewish leadership. It broke him open. It hurt him. But what came next was an insistence from the Jewish leadership that this man has to die. And when they trapped him politically and there was no place for him to go, he relented spinelessly. And he passed the sentence of death on Jesus. And it was customary, in fact, almost always the case, that before a prisoner faced the cross of crucifixion, they endured the third level of intensity of Roman flogging. It was called verberatio, and the instrument used was a whip very much like this. Multiple leather thongs to which pieces of glass and bone and metal were tied so that when you threw the whip, it would bite into the skin and flesh. And when you pulled it back, it pulled out chunks of the body with it. It was a a whipping so intense that quite often the person being flogged didn't survive the flogging. They died before they ever got to be crucified. It would very often leave bones and internal organs exposed because of the severity of the way it broke the flesh and the skin. And Jesus faced that flogging before he was made to carry the crossbeam of his own cross 
and lug it over a long road and up a hill to the place of his crucifixion. The other gospel writers record that he was in such terrible shape after the flogging that he was unable, he could not muster the strength to finish carrying it. Another man named Simon picked it up and as a loving gesture to Jesus, carried that crossbeam the rest of the way because Jesus was unable to finish the journey. On top of the physical torture, there was hanging over it the knowledge that all of this was happening and he was innocent. I don't know how many of you have been on the receiving end of injustice, of unfair treatment, where you say to yourself, if you could record your inner monologue in that period, you're saying, what did I do to bring this on? Why are they doing this to me? Why is this happening to me? How could, how could it be possible in this universe that what you are doing to me, I somehow deserve? How could it be? And when you feel those things, it's so important to know that your Savior knows exactly what that feels like. When we continue to read in this account in John 19, what we see is that Pilate refused to say there was charges that he could bring against Jesus. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die. Why? Because he claimed to be the Son of God. The very leaders who should have led the welcoming committee for the Messiah shouted for his crucifixion, and their charge against him was for claiming to be exactly who he was. I don't know if you've ever seen films based on the sad event of mistaken identity, but it is so frustrating to be wrongly accused of lacking something you have or of having something you didn't in your heart. It is so frustrating for someone to tell you, I know why you're doing it, because you always think this, or you always feel this, and you're like, I've never felt that towards you. How can you say that to me? Or as someone else says to you, and I've had this happen to me, people I have loved well for over 20 years have said to me, you've never loved me. And I just, everything in my flesh wanted me to just, you know, how can you say that to me of all people? That I've never loved you. Do you know how frustrating it is to be mischaracterized? Jesus was the son of God and he was put to death for claiming to be exactly who he was. And when Pilate could not work around this, they cornered him politically and said, look, this man is claiming to be a king. That's an act of treason and sedition. We have only one king, and it is Caesar. And by the way, the Caesar at the time, Tiberius Caesar, was not a nice guy. He was a ruthless emperor. And Rome had not seen many emperors. They had seen other leaders, 
proconsuls, consuls, but they did not see many emperors, and this guy did not brook much competition. And so when, he, when they said that to Pilate, it scared him. They said, if you allow this man to live, you're letting a traitor go. And word of that, we'll get back to Rome. And so we see Jesus, an innocent man, railroaded through a distortion of justice, wrongly accused, physically assaulted, mocked and jeered. And if you've ever felt any outrage over evil in the world, over injustice in the world, and many of you do, just take a look at Facebook and you know everyone in the world right now is ticked off about something. If you've ever felt outrage, you know just a little bit, just a little bit of the heart of God and wrath over the fallenness and sin of human beings. When you feel angry over the misdeeds of others, you are not in some way unique or standing in the place of God. You identify with something God has always felt. That outrage you feel is but an echo of the wrath of God over the sin of human beings. It is such a serious thing, our sin, that the horror of the cross was made necessary because we made it necessary. And because the love and justice of God made it necessary. I I read a quote this week I'd never read before by John Stott, the late pastor, All Saints Church in London. And it wrecked me. I want to share it with you today. He said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Don't make... Don't misunderstand. Ultimately, Jesus took the cross because God willed it and he obeyed. The great love of God was what made the cross necessary. But make no mistake, we had a hand in requiring that kind of justice. And we so often cry out to Jesus, rescue me, deliver me, save me. And rightly we should But we have to recognize that we need saving, not because we are innocent victims, but because we have all of us added to the evil and darkness and brokenness of our world. Every last one of us. There is no injustice, no sin we endure that we can say to God, why is this happening to me from a position of innocence? Not one of us has the right to look at the things being done against us and say, This should not happen to me. What we should say is, it's horrific it happens to me. But every one of us in our guilt has contributed to the state of our world. I'm not saying you're as bad as Hitler or you're as bad as the next guy. What I'm saying is, Jesus did not go to the cross for all the bad people, but for all of us. And that includes you, even when you are the victim of sin. The reason I'm making a big point of this is to to highlight that Jesus went to the cross and bore that costly sacrifice, not for people who had earned it, but for people who had self-inflicted wounds. 
If I were robbed and someone had taken all my money and I couldn't eat, and I came on a Sunday bruised and bloodied, looking really thin and said to you guys, I was attacked, I have nothing left, would you please help so that I could feed my family this week? Please just encourage me. Would you raise your hand if you'd help out with a couple bucks? Yeah, I, I hope so. Thank you, church. Those of you who didn't raise your hand, it's okay. <laughs> there were a lot who did, so I'll, I'll eat for a week. But listen, what if I said to you instead, hey, look, I was at the casino all week. I lost my shirt. I put up my house for a second mortgage. It's all gone. I let it ride on the roulette wheel, and I lost. Would you help me out? Yeah, Some of you would still help, because you're just like that. You're, you're very Jesus-y. <laughs> but can I acknowledge, can we admit, that your enthusiasm to help me, to bear loss to help me, would be greatly dampened by knowing that I wasn't some innocent victim, but I made that bed, and I have to lie in it now. I did that to myself. No one put a gun to my head and said, go and gamble your family's life away. Do you understand that it wasn't just the costliness, but the costliness in the face of our undeserving status that makes the cross of Jesus Christ so incredibly amazing? Let me give you a second element of the cross of Jesus that should pull at our hearts and help us to understand what sacrifice is. And in part, I, I preach this primarily so you will appreciate what Jesus has done for us, but also so that you will come to understand what it means when you use the word sacrifice in the life of another. What is tomorrow, everyone? April 15th, what is that? Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a great day. Go government! How many of you are excited about giving so much of your money to the federal and state government right now? Be honest with you, I'm not happy with either group getting any of my money right now. But they get it. And tomorrow, whether you're going to expect a refund or you owe, every last one of us, if we're working and earning, will pay. Without exception. I don't know why we're so happy about refunds. It's like we're getting back some of the massive amount of money we already gave them. I wouldn't call taxes a sacrifice, even though it's a great loss. Because while something is passing out of my hands into another, it is compulsory. It's not voluntary. I'm not making a sacrifice for the government. I'm being mugged by the government, and I'm giving it to them because I'm a good citizen. And yes, I get it. We get defenses, and we get police forces, and roads, and all that. I am happy for all of that. But I'm not going to call my tax payment a sacrifice. It's just a loss, a big one. And if the brother who's helping with my taxes has done his job well, it'll be less of a sacrifice or less of a loss than it could be, but it's still going to be a loss. See, when we sacrifice for someone, a big part of what makes it so valuable is that I didn't really have to do it at all. It, I wasn't compelled externally but I was compelled from my heart to do it. What's interesting is that Pilate is just in a bind, and you can see the tension in Pilate. He's trying so hard. He's like winking and nodding at Jesus. Look, dude, 
I'm on your side. Just shut up and go along. I want to get you out of here. Twice now publicly he's declared to the crowds, what is wrong with you guys? This is an innocent man. What are you trying to do to him? He gets Jesus aside privately and says, look, who are you? Why are these people so mad? What is the deal here? And so he asks him this question, where do you come from? You say you're the son of God, and it kind of chilled him. Are you like, he's like, dude, are you like really from there? Are you who you say you are? And he's trying to get Jesus to say something that will give him grounds to release him. <clears throat> In response, Jesus just sits there, says nothing. Have you ever watched a movie where, like, someone needs to speak, and so frustratingly they remain silent, and you're like, just tell her you love her. She's waiting to hear. Mm, all right, fine, I'll just go. If you don't want me, you're like, fight, say something. It's so frustrating when someone could say the words that free them from their situation and they say nothing. And Pilate is trying to give him an out and Jesus says nothing. And Pilate responds, do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I'm the guy with the power to either free you or crucify you? What is your problem? And Jesus says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. What is it Jesus is saying to Pilate? He's saying, you think I'm being quiet because I don't realize that you could let me go? And do you realize that if you drop dead right now, I could still let myself go? Do you really suppose that it is the authority of Rome that keeps me in this moment, in this place, in the face of this injustice? None of this is happening to me. I am doing it all. This is not some unfortunate turn of events. These things happening right now, Pilate, are not being orchestrated by the Jewish council or by you. But every last one of these things is happening according to the plan of my Heavenly Father. If you read the entire Gospel of John, what you see is as we approach the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, John begins to escalate the number of times he references why certain things are happening in order to fulfill Scripture. Four times in chapter 19 alone, verses 24, 28, 36, and 37, John says, this happened, this happened, this happened, and this happened, all in order to fulfill Scripture. People making decisions that could not have been orchestrated by Jesus, and all of it fulfilling prophecy that is in some cases hundreds or thousands of years old. And all of that is to say, these are not things unfolding which took Jesus by surprise. What is going on? Why is this happening? What Jesus is saying to Pilate, what John is telling us, is all of this is going according to the script of God. This is not something where people are murdering Jesus. I really dislike it when people use that language. 
Jesus was murdered. He was not murdered. He gave up his life. Murder is when someone takes your life by force. Not when you could have called upon legions of angels to rescue you and you let it happen. That is not murder. That is sacrifice. Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of John in his ministry that the Father loves me because I sacrifice my life so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. He couldn't have been clearer. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. You know, I've heard people over the years protest. Well, don't ask me to thank him for it. I never asked him to die for me. Did you ever hear that? I never asked him to die for me. If you knew better, you would beg him to die for you. Maybe you never asked him and you resent being obligated to say thank you, but you should know this. The fact that he willingly did what you could never earn or ask of him is the greatest news you will ever hear. He did something compelled from his own heart that you could not have demanded in your most dire moment. What makes a sacrifice so powerful is that it is done willingly by that person. But let's add one last dimension to this that's so important. And that is that the the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was driven by love. If you take a sacrifice that is costly and voluntary and just by themselves, people have done that for us, but when you take a costly and willing sacrifice by itself, devoid of the motive of love, you can do those things to obligate someone to you. It could just be a transaction. Oh, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to stake you this money to start your business. Not because I love you, but because I think you're smart and clever and you're going to make a ton of money and I'm going to ride you to the bank. Or I'm going to do this for you so that you'll always owe me a favor so that you'll never forget the hand that feeds you. A costly and willing sacrifice apart from love obligates and indebts us to the person making the sacrifice. What makes the cross of Christ a godly and compelling sacrifice is that it was driven by love, not by design, by agenda, by some sort of plan to indebt and obligate us. One of the most remarkable moments in John's account of the crucifixion, and it's so cool to read the four accounts of the same event and see how the men who are witnessing it remembered and recalled and recorded different aspects. It's one of the things that really helps me understand that this was not some orchestrated fiction, but eyewitness testimony from real human beings who, like all of us, when we see the same movie, half of us will walk out and go, that was stupid. The other was like, that changed my life. You're like, what? How is that possible? Because we are all so different and we will seize on different things. And in John's account of the crucifixion of Jesus, he pauses to make note of something that happened, and understandably because it happened to him. In the final moments of Jesus' life, he looks down and sees his mother Mary among those near the foot of the cross, and he sees her very obvious grief. No one should outlive their children. 
And the grief of losing a child is unbearable. And he sees what his mom is going through. And likely she was already at that point a widow. And so he has compassion. And I find this amazing that in this moment of greatest agony, he sees his mom in her grief and his heart is to minister to her in her need. I don't know if you can identify with that because sometimes when we're in pain, it's like our pain is the only thing visible. Others are hurting, but we could not care less about the pain of others. Can I get an amen? You all know that's true of you. When you're in pain, you can't imagine that the person hurting you might also be in pain. No way. All I know is you're the bad guy, and I'm the victim, and my pain is the whole universe in which I live. There is no other story but my pain. That doesn't mean your pain is not real. But pain blinds us to everything else. That was not the way of the cross. It's one of the things we are meant to learn at the cross of Jesus. Is that even in your greatest hour of pain, you cannot be blind to the pain of others. It's a symbol of the tremendous love that drove Jesus to do what he was doing. Later on, years later, in his great testimony of total devotion to Jesus in Galatians 2.20, the Apostle Paul would go on to say these words. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. One of my goals in life is someday to be able to truly say those words from a deep place of honesty. I want that to be my testimony someday, that that's truly how I live my life. And he says, here's how I got to this place of such total devotion. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You can live that life of total devotion, but if it's just because someone gave themselves for you, it is a life of indebtedness and obligation, but it's because Jesus died out of love for him. That's what makes the difference between obligation and devotion. I want to love Jesus, not because I owe him, but because he loved me. And he gave himself for me. Professor D.A. Carson famously wrote these words. It was not the nails that held Jesus to that wretched cross. It was his unqualified resolution out of love for his father. To do his father's will. And it was his love for sinners like me. Normally, I'd give a conclusion, but by way of conclusion, I want to give you one last very important thing for you to see in this tremendous story of the crucifixion. That is that the crucifixion of Jesus, his sacrifice, had a profound effect on the people who followed him. 
the Sabbath was coming, a Passover meal was being prepared all over the city of Jerusalem. And it wasn't just a regular weekly Sabbath. It was a special Sabbath meal because it was the annual Passover. As a result, no one wanted the land defiled by having corpses hanging on crosses. So they quickly lowered the bodies. And now that the Jewish leadership had gotten the justice they wanted, they were ready to move on. And in the midst of that emerged two men we don't hear much about. Two unlikely figures. Why are these two men? Because the inner crew of 11 who are left had fled for the hills. Nowhere to be seen. And he says later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. I don't know if John's writing it this way because he's like, I wasn't there, but these eyes were not really our A-team either. He says, now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by a very unlikely guy named Nicodemus, who we met back in chapter 3. The man who had earlier visited Jesus at night because he did not want to be seen. John's so funny how he includes those details. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds of spices to prepare the body of Jesus for burial. These were not the starters. These are two wealthy powerful men, both very likely members of the Jewish ruling council themselves. They were drawn to Jesus, but they followed him in secret at a distance. They had too much to lose, and they were slinking along stealthily to play it safe. I think many people in the church are that way. I'm drawn, I'm interested. But I've got a lot to lose if I'm outed. But it was the crucifixion, the witnessing of what Jesus had endured and the way that he faced it. It changed them. His sacrifice prompted their sacrifice. In fact, their sacrifice seemed a very small thing in response to what Jesus had done. They crossed the line in approaching Pilate that they would never be able to cross back from. They were forever branded as traitors, the ones who actually followed him all along. They bore incredible personal expense. It's written in the other Gospels that Joseph, in fact, laid Jesus to rest in his own unused tomb. Earlier in his ministry, Jesus said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way and take up your cross every day. Follow me. We ask Jesus to deliver us from every trouble. But I'm here to tell you today 
And I want to be faithful to God in this, that one of the ways he may deliver you is by calling you today to pick up your own cross and persevere so that you see him show up. Whenever you are tempted to say to God, it's too much. How can you ask me that? How can you ask me that? It's too high a cost. I don't want to be obligated to this person anymore. They don't deserve it. I feel no love left. How can you ask me this? Whenever you feel those things, remember the invitation of Jesus. If you want to be my follower, follow me. One of the ways I will save you is as you also learn to pick up your cross and understand what I've done for you. Die to yourself. And I ask it of you, Jesus says, because I will first do it for you. He will never ask us to pick up our cross before he invites us to gaze at his cross and remember I know God because he first loved and died for me. And whenever we sense him asking us to do something that is too much to bear, unreasonable, may we learn to gaze at the cross of Jesus Christ and remember that his sacrifice for us so costly so gladly taken up, so driven by love, is why we have a story with God at all. The cross is not just something done for us. It is something done by us. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then what the cross means to you and to me is not just our salvation, but our calling. And it is in the carrying of that cross that he will find you and meet you and reveal his power in your life. I'm going to invite you to just bow with me for a moment of prayer. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.